Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Undeniable Future Podcast. Joined here by the usuals, Justice Steve, how are you guys doing? I'm doing fantastic, man. It's good to be doing back. great, man. Yes, sir, but we got a special episode today. We have a we have a guest on the pod today. Matt, say hello to people. Hey, everybody. How you doing? It's good to be here. It's nice to have you on, Matt. It's been uh, it's been a while since we've got since we've had the opportunity to talk, but it's funny, you know, uh, just talking about us being roommates and the kind of experience that we went through at K State and how you are now into your work in in uh, in gene editing, and that's kind of we want to get into that and pretty much get into kind of what you do exactly and how it works. And before we even get into uh, the gene editing and uh, the background of your education, what you're currently doing right now, I just want to touch on a story that Lee told me about uh, you guys back when you were in K-State involving a, a roof, a tree, some mattresses, and a helmet. Give me a rundown of what was happening on that day. Yeah, um, that's, that's kind of a ridiculous story. Um, and, and in hindsight, something I never should have done. Uh, but there was this one day where Lee and I and two other friends were hanging out on the roof of Mile House in Manhattan and there's this tree not too far from the roof and someone brought up the concept of you know if you jump off the roof how far are you going to go and will you be able to hit this tree at a certain level before you fall too far and there's there's this good branch as a, as a marker level and I was saying that you know if I ran across this roof and jumped that I'd be able to hit this branch on the tree before I fall too far to be able to touch it um and lee was very adamant for the other side of the case i said no way i said no way he's gonna get up yeah (laughs) and so i how do we how do we solve this you know so i guess the best answer is someone's gonna jump off the roof and try to touch this tree and that's that's exactly what happened so do you think there's a I, i was able to i'm sorry what is that kind of a theme that you think there is in your life where you 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 find challenges that maybe people would think aren't, aren't very uh, feasible and you just feel like you can put your mind to it and achieve those goals? Uh, I, you know, I would say that that does kind of, kind of recur in my life. Uh, I don't think it anymore, uh, comes out as me jumping off of a roof, but more <laughs> as me trying to prove them wrong with my words. Um, but yeah, I do like to question the things that are in the edge of possible. So as far as questioning the edge of possible, where did that begin? You said you were, you were in K-State. Uh, what were you studying and how did this, uh, this journey begin to where you are right now? Yeah, so I started at K-State in 2014 uh, going for an undergrad degree in computer science. And at that time, I was looking to specialize in cybersecurity, which I kind of got into a bit. Um, but I ended up uh, taking a few biology classes to fill some natural science credits. And I kind of fell in love with biology. And so I picked up a biology minor um, about three years in my program. I dropped the cybersecurity thing. Um, and then I graduated in 2019 with my undergrad in computer science and stuck around at Kansas State for one more year and got my master's in genetics. And that was just last year. Um, and then that brings us to now where I just moved to Los Angeles about six months ago to start my PhD here at UCLA. 
how do you so you were talking about changing from kind of your focus from being uh, completely on computer science to having a little bit to do with biology how did you uh kind of i don't know how, how to say kind of like uh fall in love with biology like what is it about biology that interested you so much yeah, so uh, like I said, I took uh, a few classes to fulfill natural science credits. Um, and the first one was called Bio 198, or just the introductory biology class at K-State, where I actually took that class with Lee. And we had a great time working <laughs> yeah. very hard in that class. Um, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I had a really good time. It was really cool subject material that I hadn't really been exposed to before. And so I ended up talking to one of the professors enough and asked, I was like, Hey, how can I be a TA for this class in the future? I had really fun learning it. I think I could maybe help some other students understand the material as well. And I did that as well as took the next class, which was organismic biology. And that kind of explains how life on earth started, you know, like one single cell and has expanded to the entire diversity of life that we see today. And I just thought that was the coolest thing, you know, Biology, it seems to be the most tangible science for us humans to understand. Like, I can go outside and look at a plant and see, you know, this plant is leaning towards the sun. And I look at it and I go, I know exactly what's happening in there that's making that happen. And that is so cool to me. And that I think that is why uh, biology has been so interesting to me. And is there one specific thing that you're you're focusing on right now in your studies as far as biology? Like, are you... Are you going after one one goal, or is there one thing you want to cure? Is there one mission you're going after? Or is it kind of just like you're you're a generalist at this point? Uh, so I I would never want to specialize so far that I'm restricted to one little area that I I only work there um, for the rest of my research career. Um, but I have ended up uh, choosing a neurogenomics specialization. So all of the research that I will be doing, at least in the next five years, will likely be based around uh, brain diseases and brain development in humans. Actually, sometimes with mice as well. And as far as what I actually read your uh, computational modeling uh, paper on uh, CRISPR, and let me just say it was, oh, wow. it was well over my head. Took me a little bit to get through <laughs> But it seems like you're a lot more on the mathematical side of CRISPR and gene editing. But I never really think of it that way. I always think of like a wet lab, people being in the physical lab operating. But I didn't understand that it was so much behind the scenes going on on the computers and on the, the number side of it. So can you explain the difference between what you do and what you'd assume a scientist would do like when you're thinking of test tubes and pipettes? What's the difference between those two, uh, those two lanes? Um, yeah, so the first part of that was on the paper I published uh, with my professor at K-State uh, based off CRISPR applications, and we'll come back to that, I think, because it's actually a interesting use of CRISPR that most people wouldn't really think of. Um, but for the part of, you know, the kind of science I do versus the people in the wet lab with pipettes moving chemicals around, making things happen, um, I guess is so... I do more of the research into the genetic structures and what's happening there. Um, and, you know, how genes work together to make all these complex biological systems. And what I do or research that I publish may result in 
some other professor looking at that and saying, oh, maybe I should conduct a genetic editing experiment on this gene. And so they go and do the part where they go mess up a gene in the wet lab, um, you know, on bacteria or whatever and see what happens. So I guess the connection or the difference is um, I'm doing research that would lead to downstream potential genetic engineering experiments, whereas I personally or my lab itself probably won't be doing that experiment. Got it. So, I mean, this is a question we got to ask because I think a lot of people, you know, even when I read stuff about CRISPR, because, you know, we've got to prepare for these interviews and stuff. Um, what is CRISPR really? So if you were to explain to somebody who had no understanding of what CRISPR is and how it works, what would you say to them? That's a, a really fun question because, uh, and what I think is that what everyone is generally referring to as CRISPR isn't actually CRISPR at all. Um, mm. So what's CRISPR stand for? Clustered regulatory interspaced palindromic repeats. So that's like um, a library in bacteria of genetic sequences of viruses. And so how we originally discovered CRISPR is it's a, a bacterial component uh, for antiviral defense. And what happens is this bacterial has this section of DNA that we refer to as CRISPR. It's like a library of all these known viruses to the bacteria. And if one of these viruses tries to infect the bacteria, one of these short uh, sequences will match that virus's DNA, uh, where then the uh, bacterial cellular components will then find Cas9, which is that uh, protein that makes the custom DNA, and will recruit uh, that complex together on the viral DNA, um, destroying it so the virus doesn't infect the bacteria. Um, what happened recently that everyone's all up in the news about right now is researchers uh, saw that this could potentially be used for human genetic engineering. Um, and so Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier actually just won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, last year for this. And what they did is they took this CRISPR-Cas9 system that was a multi-component system, and they simplified it into being two components. One of them is a RNA um, that can match a DNA piece. So where, where do we want to go make this edit? And then the other part is this protein called Cas9 that goes and cuts DNA. Um, and so that's kind of what CRISPR is. And in all the news, CRISPR is, it's just that, that two-component system where we have a guide, where do we want to go cut DNA? And this protein is going to go cut DNA where that guide matches your DNA. Um, and then on top of that, there's all sorts of varieties of CRISPRs. Um, but I guess for not to get too in-depth, which I kind of saw myself doing at the beginning there, um, no CRISPR problem. is a very, yeah, it's just a very powerful tool where we can target specific sequences of DNA and make cuts there. So if I'm understanding that correctly, so you have, you have the Cas9 protein and then you have the RNA, which is the guide for where the Cas9 goes and the Cas9 is what removes yes. the error? Um, so no, the Cas9, all it does is it makes a break in DNA. It cuts it open. So now instead of having one continuous DNA strand, you have these two strands that are open at the end. Um, and that is what presents the opportunity to 
either so that cut itself has interrupted DNA, and it, if it repairs through regular cellular mechanisms, will probably contain some mutations. But what we can do alternatively is use that open section of DNA and use that as an opportunity to insert our own DNA that we want there, um, or have the cell copy a different part of its own component's DNA to that location. But all that CRISPR actually does is make that cut, or rather Cas9 is what's making that cut. Okay, I got that. I think. I, I, it's, it's pretty complicated, but from what, you know, from... What I guess uh, hearing from you is kind of you use CRISPR as a way that you can modify DNA and the whole system of how that happens is quite complicated. And there are different ways it's, that you can do so. Yeah. It's very complex, um, but most simply put is, you know, the guide is like, you know, you're doing control F on a Word document and you find your word and then you put a space there. You cut it open right there. Um, so on your end, is, is, what you're doing, is what you're doing kind of like finding the, the puzzle pieces? Because you have to figure out where the RNA is sending it, right? Is that kind of what you're doing? You're finding the locations? Uh, the RNA is finding the location. The RNA goes, so um, I don't know how versed everyone is in RNA and DNA, but it's DNA is a four-letter code, uh, A, T, G, and C, right? And so this guide RNA is also a four-letter code um, with the, oh, my God, why can't, we're going to have to cut this part out, guys. I can't remember what nucleotide is, so we'll just do. Oh, but um, um, basically the guide RNA is a, another sequence of nucleotides, and what it does is it goes and matches a complementary sequence. And so once that DNA matches the RNA, the, the Cas9 unit can make a cut. All right, so are there, of the work that you do personally, is there certain stuff that you are, because of the companies you work with or because of the level of research that you're not allowed to, that you're, they tell you're not allowed to speak about? Um, so I guess one thing before we get right into that is that I actually don't work with CRISPR anymore. Um, okay. That... That research project I did at K-State that Justice mentioned was, I think, the most involved with CRISPR I ever was. Mm -hmm. um, but to actually answer your question, um, I do work currently with a lot of HIPAA-protected data, so I can't just be out here trying to identify patients, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. Um, and then other than that, uh, I don't really have any confidentiality stuff I can't talk about. When I was working on that CRISPR paper, I wasn't allowed to talk about it really, but now that it's published, I can say anything. Nice, nice. Uh, that That's good for us because it lets us know that there's, there's nowhere we can't step really. So it we can't get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah. But as far as gene editing, I understand. So CRISPR is not the only tool you can use for gene editing, or is that just the most popular one? I haven't heard of anything else besides CRISPR. Is there something else? Uh, there are actually a lot of ways to do gene editing. Uh, CRISPR is just the first one where we can get so precise. So um, that guide RNA is about 20 nucleotides long, 20 letters long. So you can match a specific sequence in DNA up to 20 letters long. Um, and so... 
the amount of options you have, the total possible number of sequences uh, that are 20 letters long in DNA is four raised to the 20th power, which is a huge number. Um, and so with your guide RNA, you can target specifically um, a site that is unique to one in every four to the 20th power uh, sequences. So that's why CRISPR is all in the news right now is because it's so accurate. We can choose specifically where we want to edit the DNA, where in the past it was a little more random and a little bit less precise. Is there any issue with like variation between people? Like let's say if you and I are looking at our genomes, if you're targeting a certain part of our genome with CRISPR, would there be variations between like let's say you, I, and Lee? If you're targeting one cell, how can we know that the RNA targeting a cell in you can be the same in me are the mutations between people like how accurate is it how accurate does that get so that's actually a huge problem uh with gene editing right now is off-target effects and one of the main causes of that is the fact like you said there is genetic variation between you and i and lee and steve we're not all genetically the same and i was just talking about we can target a sequence that's specific to one and 20 to the or four to the 20th power that's a big number, but your genome is about 3 billion nucleotides long as well, I believe. So um, not only do we have to make sure the site we're targeting doesn't happen to appear somewhere else in your genome, mm-hmm. we have to make sure that the site we're targeting occurs in all of our genomes, and it's not a site that I have, but you don't have. So we have to, we have to look for that. And so when we're looking for these large-scale... Uh, cures, which I'm sure we're going to get into a few of these companies later in this interview. Um, yeah, we have to target uh, conserved regions of DNA between all humans. So it doesn't only work on half of the people or one subpopulation of humans. So you're saying to make sure that it works on all humans. So does that mean that you guys have to be able to collect all the data from different, um, let's say, well, I guess everything biologically, different races? different people of uh, different cultures and stuff so you guys can find a way to more accurately, like does it change the way you put in those, uh, you put you put DNA in and take DNA out when it happens to be people of, you know, from different places or from different races or have different uh, genetic makeup? Yeah, that's also uh, another thing that a big push is happening for right now is so currently, a lot of the genetic information we have is mostly Caucasian white people. Um, and so we're, you know, a lot of research institutions are pushing to do large sequencing projects of underrepresented populations and uh, groups of the world that maybe just don't have this technology on their own yet. So we're trying to create, you know, what currently is, you know, I, I hate that it's like this, but it's we have currently a large white person genetic database Mm -hmm. and that's not translatable to everyone in the world. We need everybody's genetic information, obviously privatized and, you know, not just, you got to protect your private data, but we need some of those data to do research. We need all people to be represented in our data sets so that we don't have biased outcomes. So how do you go about that kind of collection process? Because I know a lot of people are really skeptical about gene editing and it's like kind of like a scary term, a lot of misconceptions. How do you go about collecting yes. a larger uh, larger group? That's a little bit out of the scope of what I do. I don't really work with the data collection or generation, but 
I know that especially when uh, people are going to these uh, underprivileged countries, it, it's a big ethical concern that, you know, we're taking this genetic sequence from these people that may not fully understand what's even happening. So we have to send out representatives to make sure that these people fully understand what is being done, you know, what they're giving up here, what the potential uh, harms of having this done to them, and also what are the potential benefits of having your genome sequenced. Oh, well, it sounds like at least there's a conversation happening about it. It's not something that's being ignored, so that's good. There are a lot of conversations to be had uh, <laughs> in regards to the ethics of what's happening here. And um, it's funny, we were, you know, we are talking about just how when it comes to the ethical portion of it and the and the actual science and numbers, which is what you do, how you guys have to be able to separate those two things. Um, so how do you, when you go to work every day, do you think about the ethical part of it or are you just, I need to get this project done, uh, to this, you know, to this certain standard or do you, do you think, you know, I mean, we've had, I've had philosophical conversations with you, you know, lots of crazy philosophical conversations. So is that something that goes on in your mind? Like, do you wonder where where this is going to go in when it comes to moral directions. So it's definitely something in the back of my mind. Um, right now where I am in my career, it's not something I worry about too much. I'm not the one designing experiments and planning these whole things. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of the ethical work and, uh, committees that have to be gone through is above my head. And when this data comes to me, all of those concerns have been taken care of and I just get to play with the data. Okay. Um, I, hopefully someday I will be in a position uh, where I will have to deal. And I'm not that I'm looking forward to dealing with that, but yeah. that I'll be in a position where that will be a part of something that I have to worry about a lot more. Speaking of these misconceptions and just the ideas that maybe the layperson like myself would have about CRISPR or gene editing in general, if you had to pick out one or two things that are really big misconceptions that you'd want to like, air out and make very clear do you have anything that stands out uh that's that's a good question uh one i guess one thing that definitely does come to mind a lot is for some reason there is mass public fear of gmos mm. um whether it be in the food you're eating or just stuff i don't know um but GMOs are not bad inherently, uh, especially the ones you see on your supermarket shelves. Those have gone through many levels of testing and federal research to make it to that point. Um, and that's not to say GMOs couldn't hurt you. It's just that, you know, if someone didn't do a simple genetic experiment in a lab, immediately put that in a can and ship it to your local Walgreens. That's not what happened. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, there is still concern to be had with GMOs, but people that are just blatantly against them because they think they're scary and bad, I, I don't like that. And I think people need to do a little bit more research on their own before they go being so against something. Yeah, for sure. I think part of the problem is we don't really hear about these things. And that's why I like having these kind of conversations with people like you who can clear that stuff out. Because when I think of GMOs or when I thought of GMOs, before the fact that I had to do this, this kind of research, um, I just assumed, okay, the GMO is here. Who did this? Or well, there's some shady scientist 
in a lab somewhere in a foreign country making this GMO to make this tomato bigger and bigger and redder. But when you see the person who makes it and does that work behind the scenes, you're like, okay, this is an actual scientist who does the work, put in five, six, seven years, 10 years of education to create this. So I think we have more exposure to these kind of people who are working in these industries, then it makes it a lot less shady and scary. You understand these are regular people who are actually doing the work, right? Yeah, I do think it is a, a little bit uh, mysterious, especially when it's like companies that are pushing out products and you don't necessarily see exactly what happens to make this, you know, quote GMO. Um, but at the academic level, when someone does something like this, these uh, papers are published to be peer reviewed and then are open to the public where anybody can read this and you can know exactly what's happening here. Uh, I do think that's another issue that's a completely different thing, uh, accessibility to information for the public, especially with research. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, people don't need to be as scared of GMOs as they are, but also should do as much research as they can before formulating an opinion on them. For sure. I, I got a question. Uh, I think, well, it's kind of, kind of, I guess, an observation to add to that. I think also the fact that we understand that there's like mass production and then there's also like the ethical question now is where is the value going to be held at when people are looking at the GMOs? It's like, are you going to focus on how much money you can make or are you going to focus on actually getting the, all the side effects out of the I guess what people are being skeptical about. So I think the average person is not going to spend that much time in researching every single product. It's just going to look at, okay, so ethically, will this company be able to value what is putting into me more than what I may be to give them? I think that's where some of the like questions they the bottom ride. line more than exactly. your health. Yeah. But then I think we have Yeah, so like, like you said, um, you know, not the individual person doesn't have unlimited time to research every single one of these things. And that's where you have to put a little bit of trust into these organizations or industries that are doing these checks, like the FDA, you know, yeah. you kind of trust them a little bit that they're not just going to clear things for no reason. Uh, yeah. What was, what was the other part of that question? I'm sorry. I think he's asking about the, the bottom oh, line. This about how, are they chasing the bottom line or are they chasing making sure there's actual change with people's health. Uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, we'd, we'd like to see it always being for the greater good of the human situation and health. Um, but there are those people that do just want to make their money. Um, and so that's, that's a bit unfortunate, but something we have to deal with. And that's exactly why some of these uh, industries are, or institutions are in place to put a line between someone who's just trying to make a ton of money on the biggest tomato you've ever seen uh, <laughs> versus, you know, is this actually healthy food for you to eat? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. And, and as far as the, go ahead. No. So I think my point was actually like having a conversation with someone who is not in it for like the finances, like, like a business who's actually selling the product, having someone who knows more about what's going on into the, into the GMOs and how it's set up and what the effects may be would actually help the public trust it more now. Cause we're not just getting uh, a marketer who's telling us, Oh, this product is good for you for this, this and that, or it could be, it's actually someone who's working on building these things and telling us, so you don't, you don't have to be scared about it for this much. I think that's where my point was, uh, was going in the last question. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. 
I also think that um, I re- so in the medical field, especially with genetic engineering, I don't like the concept of someone, you know, a private company coming up with their own cure and then doing something like EpiPens, where they they're the only company who did this. They have the patents. And now they can charge you a ridiculous amount of money for something that is essential to your regular life. Yeah. Um, where on the other hand, if you're doing genetic engineering and you've made a flower a different color and it's way prettier than any iris has ever been, I don't care if you charge a hundred dollars a flower for that. That's a cosmetic <laughs> thing. That's not saving somebody's exactly, life. Yeah. Yep. I think a lot of it too is we. When we think of genetic engineering, we are as humans we are we obviously want to take it to the extreme, right? To things that that are very that aren't happening yet, but that we really are excited for. Because we let our minds get to that point. So what is what are the real things that you see every day in in uh in your sector that you're excited about that you can see already, okay, there's research happening in this and this that could really bring up some exciting things in the future. So I will, I'm going to go ahead and share with you, uh, I think one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard in genetic engineering, and I'm sure a lot of people think the same of it. Uh, it actually was done without the use of CRISPR, um, but I'm going to go ahead and start. So uh, I'm not sure exactly how long ago, maybe 10 or 15 years, uh, there was a little girl who had uh, leukemia. I think it was acute lymphomatic or lymphocytic leukemia. And uh, this is not an entirely hard to cure cancer, but this girl was not responding well to chemo. Mm. Um, and her cancer had returned by one or two times already after having gone through remission. And, you know, you're kind of running out of options at this point. Chemotherapy didn't work. Um, but the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia uh, along with University of Pennsylvania, they worked very closely together, had this new uh, clinical trial that they wanted to test. And basically, uh, so what was wrong with this girl, this version of leukemia, what it does is your bone marrow is overproducing um, a certain kind of immune cell, and it starts to clutter up your body, and they're not completely mature, so they're not doing the right thing. And so what this... Uh, treatment was that they took the HIV virus, which infects your T cells, which are immune cell in the blood, and they took the payload out, which is the part of HIV, you know, that gives you HIV, really bad stuff, messes you up, you're going to get AIDS in a few years. They took that payload out and they inserted into the HIV virus a segment of DNA that would fix this girl's uh, T-cells to attack the cancer in her body. And so what they did is then they injected this girl with the modified form of HIV, which, as we know, goes into these white blood cells and infects them and and adds some DNA to it, as HIV does. But since the uh, payload of HIV was taken out and replaced with this snippet of genetic code that would teach this girl's uh, blood, white blood cells how to attack cancer, um, that's exactly what happened. It worked. And they, so they used a modified version of HIV to um, cure a seven-year-old little girl who has leukemia, who is not responding to anything. Genetic engineering 
through HIV. That's this crazy. girl's cancer went into remission, and I think still to this day has not come back. So how, how does somebody go about figuring this out? Because I'm assuming you can't test these, these clinical trials on humans right now, right? So how do you get from the point um, of so, going from the lab to the person? Yeah, so like you said, it starts in a lab, right? And they're definitely trying this on mice or rats, or they, or at this point, they probably had. Um, and like I said, this is like 10, 15 years ago when this happened. But, you know, this this uh, system was had to have been tested in mice, and it probably was successful to some rate. And so then it advances to a human clinical trial where you can't just, you know, not anyone's eligible. This girl got put into this program because she was among five to 10% of people who don't respond to chemotherapy for this cancer. They're running out of options. You know, it's, it's a high risk situation, but it's also a very dire situation for this girl as well. And we don't do things like this unless the potential rewards significantly outweigh the risk. And I think it's good for the general public to know that, right? To know that, first of all, these companies that are working on gene editing are doing things that legitimately are for the greater good of society and are trying to. And that they're pushed to do so because they'll make a profit if they make things that are good for society. And I think it's important for us to to have that understanding because, like I said, our minds run, right? We get into these ideas of, the craziest possible things that we hear and all and like if you're like me you start thinking about all the moral implications of whatever that is but it's good to know that these companies are trying to do things that do benefit people and that that they have a push to do so so do you feel like that that your work is is good because in the future the amount of research you've done is going to be a part of something far larger that's going to help a a large amount of people? I think that's uh, the goal of almost anybody involved in research is that the research that they do can either be a component in a larger uh, structure that does improve the human condition, fix a disease, any one problem, or even that their research is the grand uh, component that fixes things they used a bunch of other people's research um, I think if I felt that the research I was doing had no merit to help a human in the future I probably wouldn't be doing it the story of that little girl and what you just said right now kind of ask, answer the question that I was going to ask uh, to follow up with what Lee was saying um, I'm seeing, not to make this a, a financial conversation, but I'm looking at a lot of, obviously we'll see what's going on with GameStop right now, AMC, Tesla, all these companies growing at such a high rate and they have such high valuations. And then you can add into that CRISPR, genomics. a lot of genomics companies also are growing at that pace. But I think that if we put our value towards these companies who are actually doing something for the greater good of people day to day, it'll be a lot better use of our, our time and maybe our money and our brain power to focus on industries that do things to help people in real time than to you know speculate on on a game stock so for yourself do you do you think that there's a lot of companies right now who are trying to get in for the profit and then they end up just because they do have to chase that profit doing things that are very good for society and helping universities with funding 
Or do you think it's kind of a case where these companies existed for so long and now finally they're getting more funding or I'm, I'm not sure what it is that's causing them to become so much larger now? I don't know if you can answer that. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been watching these genetic companies roll out um, over the last ten years. I'm not really aware of any that have lasted or been around longer than that. Uh, at least with regards to CRISPR, there have been genetic sequencing companies like Illumina that have been around for a bit. Um, but I I haven't. I do think it's good that there are you know they seem to be all at least that I'm aware of working towards you know, work fixing the disease or bettering a human condition through some sort of genetic uh, engineering system. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think I'm aware of most, probably not all of the publicly traded companies that are involved in genetic engineering. And as far as I can tell, I, I believe that most of them are there with good intentions. They're not going to, you know, finally figure this, how to fix this disease patent it and then hit us with an insulin situation where it's, you know, $600 a bottle, actually know the price of insulin or what it's supposed to be. But I know that it's probably should be cheaper. Um, That's not to say that, you know, money doesn't start to corrupt people and that one of these companies may turn to be very greedy and not for the greater good. Um, I guess in that regard, all we can do is keep our hopes up and, you know, try to keep the most ethically responsible people and positions of power with these things. Right. Cause I, I think if you were, you're saying right now, you don't think there's a lot of companies in genomics that have lasted for a very long time, right? Like as far as 10 years, 20 years, there are a lot more new companies, right? Um, yeah. And especially being publicly traded, um, they, there haven't been really genetic engineering companies publicly traded before 10 years ago. Um, because, you know, you start as a company, you go through all these rounds of private investment before you do something like an IPO. Um, yeah, I, I haven't seen much genetic stuff 10 years back. I don't think anyone was really even thinking about it until, you know, you heard the word CRISPR maybe five years ago. But now it's all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Because I, I assume that the funding for a lot of this research was done from uh, the public beforehand, right? And you're seeing governments back into this. And we can... Well, we can trust the government. We can assume that we can trust the government. <laughs> and I think it's a lot safer when you know that we can hold these people accountable. But now there's private money coming into it. The concern that I have is kind of now that it's private money and publicly funded companies, how do we regulate that? How do we follow the path of what's being pushed, what's not being pushed, what's right, what's wrong? And is that even really a concern or am I, am I worried about something that's not really, really an issue right now? Uh, yeah, so I think that is a concern that we do need to keep in mind. And like you said, early on in this, a lot of the funding was coming through government grants, like you said, that is from taxpayer money, ultimately. And that was the research happening, you know, at universities, where, you know, the CRISPR-Cas9 system was initially discovered and engineered. Um, but like you said, now this is based in a lot of private companies, where there's a lot of private money that wasn't our taxpayer funding. Um, and I think the best way to keep a check on things like that happening is the fact that there's not just one company working on this, like, uh, CRISPR therapeutics and teletherapeutics and editas are all working on similar projects. So if any one of these companies comes up with a cure for sickle cell anemia, I believe is one of the big ones they're working on, mm-hmm. um, 
the next company may come up with a cure that's not exactly the same. It doesn't violate a patent law. And then at that point, the market will, you know, one company is going to charge $20 for it because they're ethical. That will not allow the first company who patented that to do the thing because it's a different patent, a different method of fixing this problem. And that's all speculation that I'm talking about. And I'm not certain of any of this, but I think that the competition between multiple companies working on similar things and preventing a monopoly on genetic engineering is at least a good starting point to prevent that happening in this field. Yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. I think the market can really do a good job of balancing these things out. So I just was, you know, got to know this. What are those CRISPR and like gene editing conventions like? What is it like in those rooms? So I've only been to one. Um, and that was, yeah, I don't know. Obviously, there haven't been any recently with COVID going on, at least none where everyone gets to go hang out. Yeah. But the one that I did go to was at Cold Spring Harbor Labs in New York which uh, was a very big deal for me. It's probably one of the most exciting things I've done in my career. Um, but what happened there is my professor decided to fund me to go with him on this trip. And we put together a poster of my research uh, that I would present at this convention. And so, you know, my professor drives us from Manhattan, Kansas to KCI, and we fly out to New York, um, get to Uber XL down to, uh, Cold Spring Harbor, and this place was awesome, man. I had no idea. This is this is maybe even what scientists do it for. The once or twice a year they get to come to one of these conferences. Um, immediately in the door, there's buffets and food for me everywhere. I was eating yeah, like yeah. five well-rounded meals a day, yeah. and and this is in Cold Spring Harbor, New York. So this is there's a lot of fresh seafood right there for me too. Some I personally love clams, and that was just nonstop. Um, but on top of the fun of it, you know, this is also a, a convention of very smart people. Um, you know, some, something I do like when I meet a new person, what, what is the whole conversation other than me trying to get them to ask me what I do so I can flex with that. <laughs> but when, when you go to this genetic engineering conference and you're surrounded by people that do what you do, none of that's impressive. You're just a part of this. Um, and that being said, I got to watch some of the world's leading researchers present what they had been doing with CRISPR. This convention was organized by Jennifer Doudna, who I mentioned earlier, uh, co-awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for this discovery. Mm -hmm. And man, we talked about big tomatoes earlier. This guy made the biggest tomatoes. Um, <laughs> some real big tomatoes, man. Um, but in more serious manners, there was another, uh, very study shown <laughs> the big deal. Uh, but one of the, another project shown was somebody working on muscular dystrophy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this study had advanced all the way to dog trials. Um, I'm not sure exactly how you get to that, but the, they were working with dogs now. And we saw before videos of these dogs with this muscular dystrophy and these dogs could, you know, barely walk. They definitely couldn't jump or run. And through this, I don't know the exact method of, uh, 
you know, how they got the CRISPR uh, system into the body, what, you know, if they used a virus to get it in there or some other system, but they injected these dogs with one dose of whatever they had concocted. It was a CRISPR-based edit for sure. And two weeks later, these dogs that could not really walk well or do anything were running and jumping and playing. That's incredible. And it was amazing to see. And the fact that this not only is happening in dogs, but is successfully being done in dogs means it is just a few steps away from humans, man. That that sounds crazy exciting. I could imagine because just for, I mean, I don't know anything about, you know, gene editing, but being around all those people would be a really formative experience I could imagine for myself. But if I actually understood what they were saying, man. Then I then I would be like, yo, this is probably one of the coolest things that's ever that I've ever gotten to do in my life. So that that must have been really interesting for you, getting to actually have that experience, be around those people, um, getting to meet some of the top people in your in your profession, I guess. And did that motivate you? Like in your mind, did that give you kind of more of a push to be like, oh, okay, I really want to. I really want to get deeper into this. I want to get, I want to learn more about this. Yeah, man. I want to go back to one of these conferences. Um, Cause that was just so much fun, but yeah, I, that was, it was quite humbling to see literally the most brilliant people in gene editing come to one place. You know, it's not just about presenting your research. It's about sharing your ideas with each other. Mm-hmm. And hopefully some random thing you said can inspire someone to do something better in their research. Um, but yeah, it was going to that conference definitely inspired me to work a little harder. So not only I could go back to one of these conferences and have the same amount of fun, but maybe even go to one of these conferences as a, you know, a bigger ticket research presenter. Cause when I went to this one, I was, I just had a poster at a poster session. A few people came by, we chatted about it. It was great. Um, but you know, then there's the main speakers at these conferences who, you know, they get in front of the podium in front of all hundreds of people here. And they tell you about how they just made dogs walk that weren't able to walk. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. From what I heard about you and your work ethic, I'm sure you're going to be able to get back there. <laughs> but with these, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I think Lee might've, uh, oversold my work ethic a bit, <laughs> but I'll take what I can get. No, I, I read that paper. You can put it at least some work. For sure. But uh, speaking of those, uh, that research that you were seeing there and the muscle dystrophy with the, with the dogs, you said that we're a few steps away from now getting to, to human trials. I know you can't tell the future, so you can't tell me exactly like how many years or months we are away from that. But how many uh, ideas you guys share there that weren't so much uh, two, three, even five years down the line and more like 50 years down the line? I'm talking like Jurassic Park, creating like that just crazy sci-fi ideas. Are there anything like that when you guys speak about it? just for fun between people who are really educated um, on these topics. There, there was an ethics panel um, where some of these things got brought up. And it was, I don't really want to get too far into it, but it was, you know, and you were like, some of these were like, bringing up some of these more abstract moonshot genesine ideas, right. you know, <laughs> do we do them? Um, I want to know what the and experts are talking about. Are, yeah, it's, it's, 
I, I try to stay out of that part of it because it's, mm. it, you know, it's ambiguous. Ethics is a mess, and I'll just do the math. That's way easier. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I, I, I respect that, though, because I think we, like, you know, I want to know about the ethical questions, of course, but I think what's more important is can we do it to begin with? The ethical question is cool to talk about, but until you can actually get the thing done, does that does that question really matter at the moment? And I, and I could completely see why somebody in your position is like, I'd rather get this done right now because I can get this done right now. You know? Yeah, and the the ethics are, they're such a mess, and that's why, you know, I said it, it this worked in dogs, but I said a few steps away from humans, but how big are those steps? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all in the ethics area that I don't really play with. Um, on the other hand, you have people working in plant genetics who have to deal with none of this. If you kill a plant, no one cares except maybe me. Um, but but currently, as we speak right now, plants don't have rights that I'm aware of. For now. Um, yeah. Where animals do have some rights, mm-hmm. um, like you know, and the closer to humans these animals get, the more rights they seem to get. But yeah, plants have even have no rights. Um, bacteria have even less than that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I try to stay out of the ethics of it if I can. So the work you're doing right now, you see that, right? The work yeah, you're doing right now, you don't know Yeah, I, yeah, I, I might've phrased that a bit wrong. I do have to worry about the ethics. You know, you can't just disregard the ethics of it. Mm-hmm. It's just that my position right now doesn't really put me in a place where I I'm working with like I'm making these judgment calls on this research we should do. That's yeah. now I'm just doing the research. Mm-hmm. Well, so for you, um, now that you are in this position and you've made it to doing the the you know gene research you want to do, how would you explain to somebody who wants to do this, who wants to do what you do? How would you explain how they get there? Yeah, I think there's, that's first off, a very good question. Um, and I, I don't think there's one specific path that a person would take to get here. Mm. Um, but obviously a good starting point is basic biology. You know, you're not just going to jump into genetic engineering because you heard about genetic engineering. You have to understand what's actually happening here. And even if you do understand the concept of genetic engineering at the level of replacing codes and changing them, you still may not understand the biological systems that you are editing that are a result of that. Um, so I think, you know, a basic biology background is definitely a good start. Um, the way all research is going right now, I think no matter what field you're in biology or otherwise, um, I guess probably more with STEM at least, if you know how to program, even at a basic level, something like Python, that will help you get your foot in the door almost anywhere. That's how I got all of my first research positions is I was in these introductory biology classes running around K-State's biology building, Ackert Hall, to different professors asking questions about genetics. Like, why can't we do this? Or would this work? 
what about this concept? And this professor would either not know or get sick of me and send me to a different professor mm-hmm. where I would come with these new questions and ideas. And along that random chain of professor hopping I went through, uh, it came up to some of these professors that I'm not just randomly interested in this biology. I also, you know, I'm in the computer science program. I know how to program and, and write code. And that was a very uh, desired skill and still is right now in the biological sciences because we're creating all of this huge genetic data, but we need to process it. Someone needs to work on it. Um, so I got a little off track there. But I think the the most important thing people can do to kind of get into the genetic engineering field is, you know, you got to start with your basic biology and work that up to genetics so you actually understand genetics itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also computer programming is going to be vital for anyone that wants to come into the field in the future. That's really That's really good to know, and that's really important. And the reason we like to do these things on our podcast is so other people who are listening to you and who are listening to this conversation can have the opportunity to go and attempt, like if they really want to get into gene editing, then they have somewhere to start from, you know? And, I, and that's why we think it's important to talk to people who do the, like all the amazing research that you do or in any other topic. So it's really cool to see just how we can use this platform or any platform to be able to send out that message because I wouldn't know in my mind if I was at home how to get into gene editing, you know, if I really wanted to get into something like that or to get into genetics. And for and your story is such a cool story because you're not somebody who wanted to do that from the jump anyways. It's something that you that you found your interest while you were in while you were doing your education. And that's where how you were able to be like, all right, you know what? This is what I want to do. And you found your pocket. I agree with you that these these channels over the internet, your social media, this podcast, any forms of communication, the, the internet has been arguably the most powerful tool in research. Just the ability to communicate with people in different places and share your ideas quickly in less than seconds has fueled progression in, in almost all academic fields. Actually, probably all. I don't know why I said almost. Um, but also, like you said, yeah, um, it is great for people to hear about this and see that it's not, you know, it's not, I don't want to say it's not hard to be a scientist, but I do also believe that anybody can do this if they want to get involved. Um, in addition to the things I said about, you know, how could someone get involved in genetic engineering? It's also always great, you know, do a few Google searches, see if there are opportunities around you where you can do anything involved in it. Um, that being said too, I'd be happy to, if somebody listens to this and doesn't really know what steps to take, I I'd be willing to share some contact information with you guys. So listeners could reach out and maybe, you know, wherever they had in their career, maybe you're a high school student who's just interested in biology and, you know, you want to know what next steps you should take, you know, based on where you are, or say you're finishing up your undergraduate degree and looking to apply to PhD programs. These are all things that I've experienced before and they can be a little bit confusing and scary. And I'd be happy to help anyone that's looking to get involved in the sciences. Uh, you know, I want to help them get to that step so they can, do that science and contribute to society through that science. 
Yeah, you can go ahead and do that now. Just let people know where they can reach out to you. And even if you have any ideas of maybe platforms where they can go and Google search, if there's any forums or Twitter pages they can follow, even if they don't want to get into genetics themselves, or if they just want to follow it and know that this is a science that you can follow day to day and not be surprised when you see a crazy news article about, oh, they're making babies in labs. Like, where can we find logical, logical information if you want to follow along? Uh, I think... I don't have any sites specifically in mind, um, but a lot of government or at least university websites have a lot of really good introductory information on these CRISPR systems and almost any other science-based thing someone would want to study. That's a very good resource to go to. Um, uh, one thing I would recommend people be a little bit cautious with is Instagram science accounts. I, I do follow a few. I think they're really cool to look at. But I have also seen these uh, accounts with hundreds of thousands of followers, you know, post some science post explaining something, and I'll just see some blatantly wrong explanations or just something that's not correct. And there's just not a degree of professional checking that happens on Instagram mm -hmm. that, that may need to be happening. So I'm not saying don't follow these accounts. I'm just saying read it with a, a grain of I should do a little bit of my own research to more reputable sources, at least. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I also started with me wanting to share some contact information. Um, I can just say my email right now, uh, M-G-H-E-F-F-E-L at gmail.com or at ucla.edu. I can, I'll probably hear from you there. Uh, my Instagram is also at Heflon Plants. I think that has an underscore over, under it. Um, and I don't know if these guys on the podcast can like, oh, wait, this is all audio, so you can't put up a screen with that. But yeah, we'll put it know, up I'm sure we'll figure out a good way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, so there's no spelling errors of that, just so we can get that information out to anybody interested. Yeah, absolutely. So, Matt, where are we going to see you, man, in the next – if you're if in 10 years from now what do you want to do what do you want to accomplish i have a few ideas um obviously none of them are certain mm. because I, like you said there's 10 years down the road this field is evolving uh, at an unprecedented pace we don't really know what's going to happen next or or maybe we do have an idea of what's going to happen we just don't know when mm. um so the two kind of paths I see for myself right now is uh, I think it would be really cool to be a professor someday at a university where I could conduct my own research, but also uh, do a little bit of teaching as well. Um, a long time ago, I really wanted to be a teacher uh, and I got sidetracked, but that, that's something I could incorporate into being a professor. I guess that's something I'd have to do as a professor where, you know, I have my own lab. I get to orchestrate these experiments that could potentially solve some real big problems, but I also get to go teach a class where the next generation of scientists will not only share their ideas, but learn some things from me. And I think that's really cool to be able to give back to the next generation's ability to do what I do. Um, on the other hand, I, like I said in the beginning of this, I'm specializing in neurogenomics. So all of this genetic research I'm doing is mostly based in the brain now, or at least in the next four years, it will be mostly revolving around the brain, brain diseases. 
So uh, one of the companies that I've been looking at is Neuralink. I think that if I finish this PhD, um, I'd like to get in touch with Neuralink and see, you know, what they're doing at that point in time. And, uh, you know, if my skill set would be a good fit for their team. Um, I guess for anyone not familiar with Neuralink, that's uh, one of Elon Musk's companies working for the human brain computer interface. There you go. That goes into AI. Look, we gotta <laughs> we gotta have you on another time just to talk about AI and the effects of AI because we've had some pretty interesting conversations about that. Just for fun, but yeah, we actually totally. Um, this whole thing was kind of about CRISPR, but CRISPR is not really what I do actually anymore. At least I uh, I mostly build machine learning models uh, these days, a bunch of neural networks, looking at this uh, genetic information. And actually, the genetic information I'm looking at is not the genome at all. Uh, without getting too in-depth it, there's, there's a lot more things going on in your cell than this. There's just the genome. There's this thing called the epigenome, which is all of these molecules that bind to your DNA um, that aren't the actual genetic code. And right now, a lot of my projects are on studying these molecules that attach to DNA and where they're attaching. And how does that affect, you know, which genes are being turned on or turned off or how much of them is being produced. So that's, like I said, that's not even genetics itself. If you strictly read the genetic code, you would lose all of the information that I, I said there. It would be almost like um, someone reading the transcripts to this conversation we've had here. Mm -hmm. They would lose the intonation of our voices, how long we extend words. All of that would be gone. But all of that affects the meaning of what we're saying, right? Exactly. Yeah. This, these little molecules attaching to DNA affect how DNA is being read and used in your cell. It's, it's kind of funny. The first thing we figured out, you know, the Human Genome Project, we got the first uh, draft of the human genome in 2001. The yeah. first thing we learned when we sequenced the human genome was that there was much more to it than the genome itself. You know, this means we have to have a part two. We already know this guy's going to be back now. <laughs> I have two more hours of questions now, logging it up to my head. But uh, I think we should give, give you like an, a, a quick minute right now. If there's anything you want to say, maybe if you miss anything. Um, I think we covered a lot of good stuff. Uh, I think it would have been more fun to go into some of the stuff I'm working on currently. But like you said, we have the potential for a second uh, show that I get to come be a guest on. And that'd be a great time to do that. Uh, I guess this is another opportunity to emphasize to anybody listening that may be hesitant to reach out. Please do reach out. Even if it's not me or you know anybody in the sciences, I think almost everybody I know at this level is excited to help people get involved. Um, they actually, at UCLA, they, this last week was the interview process for the incoming class to do exactly what I'm doing now. And it was such a fun experience to mingle with some of these students and, you know, to see actually like that was the position I was in exactly one year ago. I was, you know, a little timid, kind of scared, didn't think I was going to get into UCLA, um, but I did. And if I hadn't applied to UCLA just because I didn't think I would get in, I would never be here right now. So again, just to reiterate, I encourage people to reach out to the people in the sciences, you know, or if you get my contact information from this podcast, reach out to me with any questions you have. I'd be happy to work with you and answer anything you need to know.
Sure. All right, Matt, man. We appreciate having you on the podcast. Appreciate talking to you anytime. Um, sure, gonna have interesting conversations in the future. There's a lot. There's a lot for us to learn, and a lot that we can definitely give to the audience from from just your wealth of knowledge. So we appreciate it a lot. Well, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Undeniable Future podcast. We'll catch you next week. I always talk to